But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. In today's episode, Paul and Richie plunge into the early 20th century, exploring Adolf Hitler's vision for the Third Reich and the audacious Operation Barbarossa. As we traverse the streets of Berlin during its ascent, we'll decode Hitler's rise within German politics and his dream of a dominant German empire. Journey with us through Hitler's formative years in Austria, his World War I experiences, and his meteoric political rise in the Weimar Republic. We'll delve into Operation Barbarossa, the ambitious invasion of the Soviet Union that saw early victories turn into decisive defeats in the brutal Russian winter, marking a pivotal moment in World War II. Join us as we explore the forces driving Hitler's strategy, his global impact, and the human cost of his decisions. Discover the blend of ambition and ideology that prompted the vast operation. We'll analyze its military strategy, resulting challenges, and historical consequences. Tune in to navigate the depths of military gamble that shaped nations and defined the 20th century. Together, we'll grasp the ambition, miscalculation, and the profound human toll of war. This is History in Motion. Welcome, everyone, to the History in Motion podcast, where today we're talking about someone who definitely doesn't need any introduction, somebody who every single person on the planet probably knows something about and really goes down as you know if we think of the most evil people of all time he's probably number one on every single list for for most people and that's adolf hitler and we're really going to be focusing today on who he is as a person and kind of rising up from a child all the way up to the time when he is the leader of the nazi party and the leader of germany but specifically one thing we're super interested in is his decision to attack the soviet union so you know, Richie, we've talked about many, many times, you just don't invade Russia. It's just, never. It, ne- it never works. And eventually when we get to talking about Napoleon and, and other leaders, it, it's just a, a foolish plan that always seems to backfire. So I'm curious kind of coming into this. Um, I know this is an area we've we've spent a lot of time kind of personally looking into, but do you have maybe any preconceived thoughts about Hitler, the person invading Russia, or is it general sense of things kind of on par with where mainstream media would would put him yeah i think it's interesting because there's like the whole failed art student trope which i think gets a lot of coverage and like to be honest with you i don't actually know much about adolf's childhood i know about his rise to power like intimately i know about his time as the leader of the third reich and based on like this particular decision i could kind of understand his perspective and look at into kind of the you know analysis as to why he made the decision to kind of move forward but it's interesting to think even as a student of history like i can't confidently speak to his biography in a meaningful way but i think it's easy you know because of who he is what he's known for and the infamy surrounding his legacy it's almost like an afterthought that 
that no one really concerns themselves with. Yeah, I kind of would fall in the same boat too. You sort of think of Hitler as just this guy who arrived on the scene and we know he's evil. So we almost like fill in the blanks in our head of who he is as a child, who he is as a young adult. We just think, oh, he's some psychopathic murderer who did all the terrible things that he did. He must have been that person his whole life. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we just kind of fill in those blanks. So I think a challenge for us today, and even for the listeners, is when we start talking about Hitler's life, it's an impossible task, I know, but I wonder how we can not equate everything that we're reading about his childhood and his early life to who he becomes in, you know, 1930s and 1940s and the mass murder killer that we we all know him to be, because it's going to be really easy to be like, aha, he did that. That must, that was, we sh- they should have known back then that this is why he became that. Because I think it's really, really difficult when you already kind of know the end to try to go back to the beginning. Well, it's like that, what's the question? Like if you go back in time, would you kill baby Hitler? <laughs> that scenario that's kind of posed to people, this kind of post-apocalyptic kind of scenario that might happen. And I think we might be able to learn more about baby Hitler in, in this particular episode <laughs> to get some more context. Yeah, I, I don't know if you'd have to kill baby Hitler. I always find that a little bit funny. Could you not kill him maybe when he was 20 and living, a, loafing around trying to be an artist or something like that? Um, maybe would have, but, you know, I, I understand why people do it. But let's let's get into his life uh, and kind of get to know him before he becomes the Hitler that we know. So Hitler was born on April 20th, 1889 in Brano Amin town in Austria-Hungary, which is in present-day Austria, close to the German border. He was the fourth of six children born to Alios Hitler and his third wife, Clara Pultz. So one thing to keep in mind here is we know Hitler's born in Austria, but he does not really identify as being an Austrian, especially at this time, and we've discussed this at length, borders are changing like crazy at this time. You know, you may be in Germany in one point, and then you're in Austria, then you're in Italy, then you're in France, and then you're probably back in France again or something like that. So he really identifies as being a German who's living in Austria, speaks German, and kind of has that ethnic identity. So despite the fact he is an Austrian citizen, he definitely identifies ethnically uh, as an Austrian. But his father is a civil servant in the Austria-Hungarian Empire, so it's still under Habsburg rule at this point. And his father's working as a customs officer. So his father's working in a job that's very strict when it comes to discipline, you know, following the rules. You know, you want to bring something into the country, you want to come out of the country, you know, here's the paperwork you got to fill out. You know, it's very bureaucratic, Mm -hmm. very kind of by the book. And so he has this level of discipline in the work that he does. And he tries to instill this discipline on Adolf and he wants him to follow in his footsteps. But this turns into a disaster because Adolf Hitler wants nothing to do with with being a customs officer. He actually goes to work with his father. And after one day of like sitting behind a desk and like pushing paper, he had basically just walks away from that saying, I will never be like my father. This is the worst thing for me. I do not want to be a bureaucrat. And so this begins kind of a series of events where Hitler and his father have a really, really adversarial relationship. And Hitler just openly rebels against what his father wants. They're just kind of coming together. And I think it is a classic story, especially around that time of father working hard. I want my son to follow in my footsteps. But he has no interest in doing so. And then it just kind of creates this relationship that continues to sour for the rest of his, his father's life. Kind of like this uh, idea of like this angsty teenage Hitler. Yes, it's exactly. Kind of, kind, of, kind of comical in many ways. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny to think of like a little Hitler sitting there folding his hands being like, no, I don't, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. This kind of being all stubborn. It is, again, this is where it's so, we think of him just as a kid and a tale as old as time. Exactly. You, can, you can really yeah. see where he, he just is a, a regular boy trying to find his way in the world. So kind of going down the rejecting what his father wants him to do, he really wants to go... Adolf really wants to go to a classical school where he can study art. He's always loved to draw. He loves 
painting pictures, you know, doing all that kind of stuff, anything that a typical art kid would want to do. But his father wants him to go to a technical school where he's going to learn math, he's going to learn sciences, he's going to learn things that are going to help him to be eventually work for the government or whatever type of job he's going to do, really more in that traditional kind of male mm -hmm. sense of what he wants him to do. So Hitler writes in his autobiography later in life, he states that he intentionally performed poorly in school, hoping that once his father saw him, Hitler would say, what little progress I was making at the technical school, and he would let me devote myself to my dream. So he almost rebels and like says, I was doing poorly in school intentionally just because I wanted to show my father that I hate this and I don't want to do it. And he's forcing me down this. Maybe it's a little bit of a way for him to backtrack on maybe why I didn't just do so well in school. But sure. you can understand it, right? If you're, we all know those people who really hate math and are forced to do math, they're probably not going to put their, their time and effort into it and vice versa. If you're good at math, but you're told to paint a picture and you really hate art, you're probably not going to spend much effort on it. So again, really just typical kid in terms of trying to find his way, but his father's just, he's got a plan for him and he's telling him to stick to it and he's pushing him down that, that path. It is very interesting to hear the additional subtext context around his life. I, even having like studied history at like a university level, it's amazing how much time I spent like inundated with World War One and World War Two history. And, you know, maybe less than 1% of history that I like that covers that era really gets into any of this, right? And I think this is like one of those main sticking points as to why I think like our analysis is so interesting, because we try to paint a very broad picture, whereas, you know, it takes time to understand the nuances and context of any one individual person. And obviously, his legacy and impact that he's had, like, we're clearly still talking about it. It changed the face of the world, you know, till this day. But to see, you know, the more human side of him, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how I feel about it. It's it's a little unnerving in a way. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's kind of the word that comes to mind right now. <laughs> yeah. I think kind of doing this research, I, I almost, I worked really hard to just turn off my brain and sort of not think of who I was actually talking about. Like, I'm just thinking of a person and then you yep. start to see things. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, right. This is this mass murderer that um, is going to cause all this chaos in the world. But yeah, it is weird because I wonder too, if, if we run into the, the problem of we look at Hitler and we look at these terrible people and we think if we look at them as humans, it somehow softens the terrible things that they did. And maybe that's kind of why a lot of us shy away from this. But but I think it's, again, like you were saying, it takes away from such an important piece of who is this person? How do they come to be? And again, you know, would you go kill baby Hitler or something like that? You know, he, there's probably warning signs. There's probably things that were pushed in, into him from a society le societal level, from a family perspective that created what ended up becoming, you know, the Hitler that we all know. So I think, yeah, it's, and it's important to kind of bring the two together, but I, I can definitely see a lot of people just putting a wall up and saying, well, I don't really want to look at him as more than Adolf Hitler, leader of the Nazi party, chancellor of Germany, that kind of stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's it's much more complicated to do the exact opposite, right? I remember watching a lecture, and I f I forget who delivered it, but they essentially showed a picture of Nazi youth in Germany in the you know mid to late thirties, and they start the lecture by just zooming in on their faces, so you can't see the Nazi regalia that they're actually adorned in, but they look like innocent high schoolers just having fun at a local lake. And then they zoom out and you can see the swastika patches and they're like, you know, uh, Hitler youth uniforms. And it just makes you think like these are just kids, right? Doing what is at the time within their context seen as, you know, more or less socially acceptable, which really makes you think, you know, people are people are people. 
Yeah. And there's that classic question, right? If you were in Germany, would you be a Nazi? And we all say no, because of we course. wouldn't, we, how could you not? Yeah. But to your point, that, that's such a perfect example of you take the context away, you put yourself in that echo chamber, you don't know any better, especially as a young child. It's really hard to to yeah, kind of exactly. pull yourself away from that. And I think, yeah, that's, I think just this whole time period where we, we just say Nazis, bad, terrible, and we can't think anything else about it. We don't want to even look at the individuals because we kind of paint them all with the same brush. Yep. And sometimes they deserve to be painted with the same 100%. brush and maybe yep. even a, a worse brush. And then some, you know, <laughs> we might want to look and say, okay, maybe there's a little bit more to them. So it's interesting too with Hitler as, as we, he kind of goes through his early life. So like we were saying with his father, it's just a poor, poor relationship. I would say, and maybe some would say that by modern standards, his father was abusive and just very, you know, emotionally abusive and just really putting Hitler down um, and not letting him kind of flourish in the way that he wanted to and really making him feel suppressed. So there's just an awful, awful relationship. Hitler's not able to do what he wants, but I guess we could say luckily for Hitler, his father passes away while Hitler's still a teenager. So he's essentially unshackled by this kind of path that he wants to be set on. And now he just kind of has to contend with his mother. And that relationship is the complete opposite of the the relationship he has with his father. His relationship with his mother is probably as good as it could get between a, a son and a mother. She's 100% supportive of anything he wants to do. Mm-hmm. She makes sure that he's got the resources he needs to pursue the life that he wants. And he gives it back to her in terms of he's always spending time with her, writing her letters, always making sure that you know he's trying to be the best son that he can. And that relationship really, really becomes strong. And it's important for him because when he does eventually leave home, he still has this you know strong parental figure that he can turn back to and kind of keep him moving forward and all those sort of things. And he, he's not, he doesn't feel like he's, you know, shackled by what his father wants him to do. Mm-hmm. He can kind of go pursue, you know, that art career that he really wants. That's very interesting. I wonder, you know, it's never easy to lose your father at any age, but it, it, you know, the dichotomy there is quite interesting. I wonder how his mother was while his father was alive. Obviously, if you take, you know, social considerations and, and, you know, you know, the man is the father of the house and obviously, you know, with social and gender norms as they were in the, wait, wait, we're talking about what, the late 1800s, early 1900s at this point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So very, yeah, I'd say like, yeah, maybe first decade of the 1900s. So yeah, societal norms are very, if you're a woman and you don't get married, there's only a few paths of life that you can take and most of them aren't good. So (laughs) yeah, there's a totally a possibility where this was a somewhat loveless relationship that was kind of more transactional than anything else. But maybe they were, maybe they worked for each other. Who knows? knows? We don't really know for sure. So with his father passing away and his mother really kind of taking more of a, a foothold in his life, Hitler leaves home and he moves to Vienna where he applies to go into an art school. And this is the classic story of rejected art school student. So he goes to Vienna. He's rejected twice from the art school. And he's actually was recommended to go to an architecture school by the, I think it was like the dean or the president of the school that rejected him and said, hey, you got some talent, but maybe you should try architecture. But Hitler never had any of those harder mathematical skills and more technical skills that would require to be an architect. So now he's kind of kind of a lost soul right now. He doesn't really know what to do. But despite all this, his mother is continuing to support him financially. So he would find little small art commissions, he'd pick up odd jobs around the city and just kind of really kind of do different things with art and try to sell pictures and do portraits and that kind of stuff. And his mother's supporting him financially. So he's not quite a starving artist, but he's living the life of a starving artist with, you know, some support from his mother. But unfortunately for Hitler, while he's still only 18, disaster strikes and his mother passes away from breast cancer. So now Hitler is essentially without any parents at the age of 18, living in Vienna, 
not really sure what he's going to do with his life. And he doesn't have that support of his mother. But the interesting thing of all of this is, as we've mentioned, his relationship with his mother is so strong is Hitler is devastated. And so a doctor even recalls that he's never seen a person so devout to his mother more than Hitler was when she died. So he was by her bedside in her final days, you know, showing a, a lot of emotion um, when she passed. And, you know, just like anybody, even maybe to a higher level of someone who's losing a mother so young, he's showing very human emotion and very strong human emotion. So, you know, I've always come, and this is something that came to me was, you know, I've always been in my head heard, you know, Hitler's a psychopath, never felt any emotion. He just wanted to murder and take over the world and, and do what he needed to do. But when I hear something like this, it's really hard for me to walk away from this and say, yeah, Hitler was just a psychopath and we can write him off on that. He was devoid of emotion. It seems like quite the opposite. He's clearly a very emotional person. And so I don't know if even the term, I don't want to give him a psychological breakdown, but I think just sure, that yeah. is something I've thrown out of my head to say, you can't call him a psychopath and use that to write off a lot of the things you know that he ends up doing, because clearly he's capable of really deep, you know, intense emotions towards other people. Oh, 100%. And I think it's almost unfair to pin what we know happened solely on Hitler. Like, I, I think that is like, you know, extremely short-sighted intellectually and historically. He was surrounded by people that supported his decision making had their own decision making power that uh, you know eventually a cul you know, culminated in you know what happened in Nazi Germany the holocaust the concentration camps there's there was a netflix series called uh i think it's called hitler's inner circle of evil super well done it actually is like i think it's like 8 to 10 episodes just one season but it essentially does like a um a summary of hitler's rise to power but it does an exposé on each of his like internal cronies so uh you know heinrich himmler um, you know, a couple of others to showcase, you know, like the inner contentions that were there and what ideas were put forward by who. So, you know, to your point, you know, labeling him a psychopath again, very easy to do and totally understandable given what we know. But at the same time, you know, there was much more going on in terms of who was making what decision and why and how it all kind of, you know, ended up materializing later. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when we when we look at kind of everybody around him, it's it's you wouldn't say like, oh, you know, Hitler wasn't the first one to to invent anti-Semitism. He wasn't the first person to be like, you know what, I'm you know I'm not a fan of uh, my Jewish neighbor. You know, this is something that's deeply ingrained in European society. He's not the first person to try to conquer Europe. He's not the first person to be a fascist. All of these things have ex existed before him, and it is like a perfect storm that you know brings him to power. But he's still a long way from from being that person. There's still a, another war that he has to go through. So after his mother dies, he essentially becomes semi-homeless he's living in communal housing he's living in homeless shelters he's a drifter essentially he's moving around vienna trying to find his way in the world um really just trying to find purpose trying to find meaning because he doesn't have anything he's lost both of his parents he's not able to get into art school he's really just kind of lost so world war one breaks out in 1914 and Hitler being in Austria, being an Austrian citizen, is expected to fight for the Austrians. But he ends up becoming a draft dodger. So he hates the Habsburgs. He wants nothing to do with Austria. He sees himself purely as a German. So there's this kind of back and forth where he's running into Munich. He tries to get away from the draft. The Austrians catch up to him, determine that he's unfit to fight um, for some medical reason. And then eventually Hitler is able to join into the Bavarian army 
which is kind of part of the, the grander German army. And he serves for the entire war. So he doesn't take a break. He starts right in 1914 and goes all the way to 1918. So he serves as a courier during the war. So he's basically riding bicycles or riding motorcycles or different small vehicles from the front lines back to military headquarters. And it's a very lonely job at times where you're kind of going through enemy fire to try and get messages. It's very difficult. You know, casualty rates are high. And he's kind of got this like weird spot where he's doing all of this stuff, but then he has a lot of time, just downtime where he's waiting for, you know, general to come out and say, Hey, Adolf, I need you to take this to the front lines because he's kind of has to be ready. And he spends a lot of time drawing and sketching and just being really to himself. And you kind of see this version of Hitler where he's just very this introverted young man who's trying to live his way through this war. And when he has any downtime, he goes back to his true passion, which is love for art and love for just kind of being alone and kind of taking everything in as he can. And he just continues to kind of do that, um, you know, throughout the war. So it's an interesting kind of setup where, you know, we, I would have thought, oh, Hitler, natural leader, you know, great, you know, great orator, great public speaker. I would have thought he would have been in some sort of leadership role or at least make his way into the leadership role. But he goes the entire war and I think he's like a private first class by the end of the war. So he has nobody under his command. He's just taking orders for the entire mm-hmm. war. So, you know, compare that to who he becomes. It's it's interesting that he's, you know, you don't really see this slow progression. Um, you would have think starting in the war. Like I thought of someone like Harry Truman. And it's interesting say, because yeah. <laughs> Truman it's came so, to mind right away. <laughs> which is so odd, right? Where, how can you compare Truman to Hitler? But if you really look at them both really having failed at a lot of things that they tried to do, they were really lost, didn't know what was going on. And then the military gave them some sort of purpose. Mm-hmm. Hitler is able to excel as an individual contributor. He receives a bunch of awards from his superiors for his service and all these sort of things and does his job really well, where Truman comes out as a natural leader and, and that kind of works into their careers. But it's weird kind of you know how much it, it diverges from that. But they do have very different military careers and you know, not having a leadership position was something that was a little bit interesting to me. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's funny you said Truman because Truman came to mind immediately as kind of the outlier of someone who doesn't have like the most gloried come up, you know, across his childhood, adolescence, but his uh, tenure in the military really seemed to kind of propel him into the next echelon of, you know, expertise, experience, skill set that allowed him to eventually become the president, whereas Hitler has almost the exact opposite, you know, uh, results of his of his time in the army but you can see you know based on what you're telling me he kind of it seems like he almost rejoiced in it in a way because it gave him some solitude and a long time to you know kind of be reflective and, and lose himself in his artwork yeah, and it gives him some really just something to do because at that yeah. point he was really doing nothing <laughs> and it gives him purpose right it gives him structure yeah. and i think that's kind of what he needed in his life and this is also the first time too where we know that hitler has this devout love for animals so you see he's always got his german shepherds around when you kind of see the the nazi propaganda but during the war there's like i think there's a few dogs that kind of come to the front lines and the german soldiers kind of end up taking these these stray dogs in and just kind of keeping them around and hitler shows Again, a lot of love for these animals and, and is really kind of protective of them. And again, it's just another interesting piece of, you know, so care so much for the the little innocent things in life and then everything comes together. But yeah. we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But the, the war is kind of coming to an end. Um, it's 1918 and Hitler's gone most of the war small little wounds here and there, but nothing too serious, but he doesn't quite make it to the end of the war without anything serious happening to him. So in 1918, he's doing his typical courier job and a mustard gas attack is launched on the German forces. They don't know for sure if it was from the British or US or French troops. There's some rumors too that it was 
a German mustard gas and the wind changed direction and came back and it was kind I've of a, yeah. it's like a friendly fire sort of situation. But essentially he gets knocked out by this mustard gas and he's really seriously injured. He's brought back to a, a military um, hospital and he basically wakes up and he finds out that, you know, the war is coming to an end and, you know, he's really kind of trying to struggle with, okay, where are things at? Where's my, you know, what, what's really going on? And then all of a sudden he realizes he can't see. He wakes up and he can't see. And so they go, oh no, he must've, you know, something happened to his eyes. But they really kind of, the doctors do a lot of looking at him and they realize, oh no, this is a psychological problem. He has hysterical blindness. And so we need to calm him down and kind of work through him mentally to kind of get his vision back. And that eventually happens. Then he finds out Germany surrendered rumor is he loses his vision again and then the doctors kind of bring him back so to take a step back from this i'll put you in kind of curious what you would think richie it's 1930 whatever hitler's rising to power do you think he wants people knowing that he has hysterical blindness during the war or do you think that's something he might want to cover up is that a real thing hysterical blindness yeah so it's a uh it's like a pizza it's some sort of thing that soldiers get where they're it's like just so much trauma on the brain where they lose sight and then eventually it's now you have to treat as a psychological disorder and then your vision will come back wow that is fascinating that's definitely something you don't want to get out yes 100 percent. you would (laughs) you would bury that like your life depended so funny you say that because he becomes chancellor, he becomes leader of the Nazi party, and there is a huge push to bury these medical records and never Fair reveal enough. them to the German public. There's also some mysterious deaths around people who were involved in that. That's a little bit more rumor, but you know, you're trying to propel yourself as the Aryan superior race. Oh, but you can't handle a little mustard gas attack and you went blind. That's how are you supposed to be the superior race? So you really have all of those things going on. You know, it's a totally normal thing that happens to some soldiers, especially with, for what he just went through, finds out hit with mustard gas, then finds out that Germany lost the war, you know, totally makes sense. But yeah, tough hand. Yeah, tough exactly. Hand. Tough, tough hand, hand indeed. Yeah. So Hitler describes the war kind of afterwards saying it was the greatest of all experiences. He was command. He was celebrated by his superior officers for his bravery. He but it really reinforced his German patriotism. And he mm-hmm. was shocked by Germans' capitulation in, in November of 1918. So really what happens at this time is the German government kind of and the army kind of just all kind of capitulate together. The, this is very different than World War II. There's barely any fighting that actually happens in Germany. Most of it happens in France. So it's yep. not like in 40, 1945, the Soviets are knocking on Hitler's bunker door, trying to, you know, asking for his surrender. Yep. This is like an armistice is signed and... You know, the war ends without really many German citizens even seeing parts of the war. Mm -hmm. So like other German nationalists, he believes in this stabbed in the back theory, which claimed that the German army was undefeated on the field and was stabbed in the back on the home fronts by civilian leaders, communists and Jews. So he's starting to see there's this, well, there's these people working in the background who are pulling the strings that actually destroy Germany because our army was so superior. We would have never lost if it wasn't for these people, you know, behind the scenes. And it really comes and you'll really start to see when the Nazi party starts to take flight in a lot of Hitler's speeches is communism is terrible and the Jews are terrible. And we got to destroy both of them if we're really going to bring you know, Germany back to where it needs to be. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. <clears throat> and like when I'm the word that came to mind or kind of this idea, you know, based on how he might feel at this point in time with Germany capitulating in World War One, that there's almost this kind of cabal behind the scenes that is 
pulling the strings, you know, the, the said puppeteer that is responsible for the, you know, the failure or the capitulation of the German war effort. Yeah. And it kind of all comes together with, and it was even funny, actually, now that I think about it, it reminds me a lot when we talked about the civil war and we talked about like the, um, what was called the, when the South is basically saying it was, you know, the, the whole failed enterprise of, of what was happening, the failed idea of having a Southern state. And it turns into a hundred years of Jim Crow and all of these terrible things. It's, it's this, we had something and it was destroyed by these other people. And it really yep. just turns people mad essentially. So, you know, that's a, that's kind of where things start off with Hitler, but it takes a long time for him to, to really get into power. So he ends the war and he's still in the military. Um, he's serving as an intelligence officer now where his part of his training is to learn army propaganda and learn how to speak to it to others. So he's actually going through public speaking training. So a little foreshadowing on, Hey, mm-hmm. maybe he did this and people realize that, Oh, he's got kind of a knack for this. So he was tasked with infiltrating the Germans worker party where he was praised for his oratory skills and he would kind of go into these meetings, he would speak up, try to act like someone who was there. But he really starts to realize that these guys are making a lot of sense to him and he kind of likes what they're saying. So he quits the army and he joins the Germans Worker Party in a formal sense. This German Worker Party will end up becoming what we know today as the Nazi Party. So he kind of falls on it through kind of happenstance and just kind of shows up and people are like, oh, this guy knows what he's, you know, he's he's doing well when it comes to kind of getting involved with a lot of those conversations. And, uh, you know, this is really where his, we could call it, I guess, a political career um, sure. really kicks into high gear um, as he kind of joins his party. So he, we look back to of, okay, now he joins his party, but there's also the, the anti-Semitism question, because obviously that becomes a huge, huge part. There's some confirmation of when that kind of comes up. There's always a question of, was he even always an anti-Semite? Did it come later in life? Most historians agree that pre-World War One, while he was living in Vienna, he had very deep anti-Semitic um, thoughts and feelings. But the earliest written statement we see is in 1919 when he writes a letter um, where he basically says the aim for the government must, quote, unshakably be the removal of the Jews altogether. So yeah. pretty, okay. pre- pretty cut and dry, right? He's not trying there to hide anything. Yeah. 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 So I, I think the, uh, the definitely the thought of the time is, you know, definitely not like a final solution Holocaust sort of situation, but similar to maybe what we talked about with Queen Isabella, where you're kind mm-hmm. of expelling the Jews, um, you know, from Germany. So he's got these thoughts in his head, um, but he's trying to see what this Nazi party can be. And the Nazi party is kind of a mess. There's a lot of internal fighting amongst the party. So Hitler goes and he offers his resignation. So at this point, Hitler's pretty big deal in the Nazi party. People realize how great of a speaker he is. So he offers to resign. And then the party realizes, oh, if we lose our best speaker, that's a big problem. And they get together and say, okay, actually, do you want to be chairman of the Nazi party? And he goes, sure, I, I'll be not, I'll be chairman. So Hitler, I think he understands his value here and he kind of plays mm-hmm. his hand, um, you know, really well. And so now he's leader of the Nazi party. He's going through, you know, the, the beer halls in Munich and he's using populist themes and using, you know, scapegoats and talking about the economic hardships and just, you know, when you listen to Hitler, he's going to start pointing to you know, things are down because of the Jews, because of the Treaty of Versailles, but also he's going after the German government really, really hard for signing the Treaty of Versailles, for putting Germany into this economic ruin. And he almost has this hypnotic effect amongst larger audiences. And there's a, a former member of the Hitler Youth who said, after watching one of his speeches, he says, we erupted into a frenzy of nationalistic pride that bordered on hysteria. For minutes on end, we shouted at the top of our lungs with tears streaming down our faces, see Kyle, see Kyle, see Kyle. From that moment on, I belong to Adolf Hitler, body and soul. 
That's chilling. That is absolutely frightening. But it just goes to show you the power of that shows you the powerful of the the power of a good orator, national sentiment, and blaming the other. And when you have this confluence of things that kind of all merge in this perfect storm, what you can trigger in people is, you know, it's like catching lightning in a bottle. It is, it, le- it almost leaves me in awe in a certain way. Is a very, very s- small set, small subset of people that have this specific skill. And like, you think of the emotion you feel when you know, you're in a big crowd at a concert or something, and that person mm-hmm. on the stage is singing something, you kind of feel this collective feeling towards whatever they're saying and whatever they're doing it's just that's from this quote that's what it sounds like to me is he's a he's a rock star he's able to not only make people think about what he's saying okay i agree with that or oh he's right about that it's this emotional piece that he can set to them and this feeling that you've never felt before it's incredibly incredibly powerful and we can see very quickly why he's able to you know bring more supporters to his cause and and really grow the nazi party so one thing that i actually read that was super interesting was before every speech hitler would take notes he would start writing about the speech that he was about to give but it wasn't he's not thinking about you know what he's going to say or how he's going to say it or working on his cadence he's taking notes as if he was a reporter who's going to be in the crowd today listening to his speech what would that reporter be saying about him so he's already thinking about how can i make this newsworthy how can i make it so somebody who's not me can hear what i'm saying and really ingest it as somebody you know somebody else and make it for the masses and, and if he can't do that he's going to change his speech up and make sure that he can you know kind of get that newsworthy kind of headline propaganda machine going through you know the things that he's saying yeah i think that just you know goes to show one you know there's always a question like why didn't anyone say or do anything or stop you know the atrocities that were being committed right neighbors turning in neighbors obviously the nazi party and Hitler, Goebbels obviously played a major part in it as well. But you know, they were able to harness something in the court of public opinion that you know I don't think they could have done what they did without having reinforced it as well as they did. Yeah, it's a like we said this the, the emotion gets into it. It's it's tough to separate sometimes logic mm-hmm. and morality from this deep emotional connection you have with something. Obviously, there's fear on top of that as well. But if you bring sure. all those together, mm-hmm. you know, it gets pretty pretty crazy. But there's a few kind of things here that we should get through just on hit, with kind of Hitler's life and kind of before he becomes the chancellor, and then we can kind of get into you know what happens kind of during the war. So. We need to remember here with Germany, things are going okay after the war. You know, their their economy's not great, but it's not as bad as it's about to get. And so inflation hits Germany really, really hard. And then it goes to another level called hyperinflation, where inflation is just completely out of control. So I heard something where it was like around World War One, one US dollar was worth four or five Deutschmarks, which is the German currency. By the time this hyperinflation hits, it's in the billions. So it just essentially money becomes worthless. And there's a story that the German people would tell about how bad inflation was. So it'd be, you know, the classic thing of you bring a a sack of money to buy a loaf of bread because it was so worthless. It'd be a billion dollars for a loaf of, or a billion marks for a loaf of bread. But there's a story that's not true, but kind of sums things up really well, where a German man gets a call from the bank. The bank says, hey, we have all of your money here. But it's so worthless that it's not even worth 
the processing, uh, the amount of money we have to spend to just process it and protect it. We just, we're going to kick you out of the bank. You need to come down here and get all of your money and bring some bags or something. Cause there's obviously a lot of paper money. So the man comes down to the bank in a wheelbarrow. He fills all his money up into the wheelbarrow and he's leaving and he gets caught by a mugger in an alley. The mugger beats him up and takes the wheelbarrow, but leaves the money. <laughs> so it's to the point where physical goods have more value than money because it's just it's worthless it's paper you know people burning it you you might as well just burn it for heat it's probably more give you more value than what you could do right yeah yeah exactly so eventually they they figured this stuff out later on um they kind of rejig the currency and and make it it was ended up making it worth something equated to like the agricultural land in germany some crazy economic stuff they did there but it seem to work but before that even happens the the nazi party officially becomes founded from the german workers party you know hitler's their main guy but the problem is this hyperinflation was great for hitler he could yell about a bunch of things and people are like well our lives suck the middle class is not doing well the rich are not doing well you know great this is perfect for hitler but then they start to figure out inflation so hitler starts to realize that he needs to do something he needs to act to get into government in some way because if things start to get better, his message isn't going to sound as good and it's not going to be able to attract as much followers. So they actually try essentially what's a coup in Munich. So they try to take over the government in Munich and eventually the goal is to take over the Bavarian government and then use that as a springboard to gain followers throughout the rest of Germany. And so where the Nazis kind of fail is they know that they have the support in Munich, but they don't have it anywhere else in Germany. So they try it and it's a complete disaster. There's just poor planning. There's mistakes made along the way. And they really underemphasize or underestimate how conv- how loyal the Bavarian people are to the government. The army's not on board. So it kind of falls apart pretty quickly. Uh-huh. And really what Hitler was trying to do was copy Mussolini. Mussolini is your really the inventor of fascism. Mussolini marched into Rome with 30,000 of his troops or of his supporters, and the king capitulated and gave him the government. And Hitler has this idea in his head that I can do the same thing if I have 30,000 people. But the circumstances were much different from Mussolini to Hitler. So it becomes a disaster. He gets arrested. He gets thrown in prison. This is where he writes his autobiography, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, where he outlines his political ideology and all of his goals. Eventually, he's released the next year. He returns into politics, and he realizes that he needs to achieve power through legal means. So he's really emphasizing on propaganda, grassroots organizing, Mm -hmm. knows that he needs to get into government legally, and then he can start to do some damage. So they gain a lot of support, the the Nazi party. So the depression is, is going on. So there's obviously, they fixed the currency issue, but they haven't fixed the economy yet. And the world really hasn't fixed it. So there's a perfect opportunity for that. And he really gets into government and just really starts to grow this persona around the Nazi party. And eventually he is appointed chancellor in 1933. And he was essentially appointed chancellor um, by the president who kind of had an idea that he could control him. He's like, yeah, this guy's not much to worry about. I can control him. Big mistake. He consolidates his power. And this is where the fascism starts to take over. He starts to demantle the democratic process. So there's the Reichstag fire, which is the German building where he basically had his supporters light it on fire and then started blaming Jews and other people so he could give himself more authority, um, suspend civil civil liberties and really push himself down the line of becoming a dictator. And then the final thing is he just bans all other opposition parties. So the Nazi party is the only party. No one else can come against us. 
And now he really has this fascist dictatorial control over all of Germany. And this is the standard fascist playbook. So I find it interesting today. A lot of people point to politicians and say, ah, they're a fascist, they're a fascist. And there's pieces of that where you have nationalist movements, you have racism, conservatism. But the one thing that Hitler really does, and I think to make someone truly a fascist is to get into government legally through a democratic process and then destroy that democratic process from the inside versus uh, like a military coup where someone takes over, you know, through force. So Hitler's essentially the king of Germany now, for whatever you want to call it, he's the Fuhrer, the leader. And now he's, you know, he's ready to not just take Germany to the next level, but really do all these crazy things that he does in Europe. Oh man, what a fascinating journey. Like it's incredible to think the, like the up and downs that he's gone through up until this point to find himself as the leader, chancellor of Germany and leader of the Nazi party. And then even crazier to think what happens after that. It, it is you know quite the journey. And I, you know, I think I've learned a lot up until this point in the podcast, because, you know, I, I knew a bit about his rise to power. I didn't know much about his adolescence and the things he kind of went through with his parents or the hysterical blindness. I'm glad some historian dug that out, you know, of some archive, uh, because that is absolutely fascinating. But I, yeah, there's almost this, you know, you got to give him credit to a certain degree in terms of how he's able to not only manipulate the situation around him, but he's, you know, the almost kind of opportunistic edge by way of how he's operating. Definitely. And I think a lot of people look at him and thought they could not maybe take advantage of him, but say, use him as a springboard to advance their careers. And he brings in a lot of smart people around him to kind of handle different things, but they all still follow him and they're still very loyal to him. And he's because he has this ability to have control over the masses and really be the face of the Nazi party, the face of whatever he this whole movement. And so these people who may see him as someone who they can control or they can use or they can maybe eventually replace one day really all falls apart when, you know, he stands up in those speeches and you know, like, like that member of the Hitler youth was saying, you know, begin to cry when they hear him and feel this emotional feeling that they've never felt before. No one else can do that. And they know it. And it's really interesting because he is this lost soul who really doesn't know where he's going to be. Certain things work in his favor. And, but he really had this unknown talent of being maybe the best public speaker of all time, pretty close, probably to one of the best. Yeah. And unfortunately it needed some very terrible dark things to happen for him to kind of flourish in that space and then ultimately use it for evil but it's just kind of that's what happens and it's a very fascinating journey like you were saying from relative obscurity to technically as we would say the most evil man you know yeah i would argue the most infamous man of of the modern of modern history definitely yeah yeah he's definitely in the discussion there is no denying that (laughs) oh yeah so i think Paul, if it's good with you, we can probably kick off into the operation a little bit. We can set the scene. So ultimately, we're talking about his decision to, well, at least for the context of this particular episode, to invade Russia. So we'll just set the scene a little bit more at a high level. So we have the rise of Nazi Germany. You know, the Treaty of Versailles has been imposed. Hitler is, you know, the leader of the, uh, you know, the Chancellor of Germany, the leader of the Nazi Party. And they begin to, you know, kind of overstep some of these, uh, you know, agreements that are outlined in the Treaty of Versailles. 
rearming and expanding their military. We've touched on his ideological goals uh, that are outlined in Mein Kampf. We'll return to an idea that he expresses, this desire for Liebenstrom, or living space, which I think kind of uh, undercuts most of his expansion efforts for the German people. Um, you have early German conquests that happened. So by 1940, they had annexed Austria, Czechoslovakia, and conquered Poland, with Soviets invading from the east, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France. So you can see the rapid succession success of the of the German war effort. At the same time, uh, leading up to the opera, uh, to Operation Barbarossa, you have Soviet expansion as well. Uh, the Soviet Union has annexed parts of Poland. They've occupied the Baltic states, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and they've seized parts of Finland after the Winter War. And if we look a little bit at, at you know, British resistance and some failed peace overtures after conquering most of Western Europe, Hitler sought peace with Britain. Britain's refusal to negotiate the subsequent, uh, at, you know, prolonged the Battle of Britain made Hitler look you know, to the east for more decisive victory. And if we look at the USR, USSR and what it means potentially to Hitler, you know, it's a treasure trove of resources, especially the oil from the Caucasus. He knew that capturing these resources would provide Germany with a significant advantage. It could potentially cripple the British resistance. And, you know, Nazi ideology. So we often look at, you know, Nazi ideology as kind of this racist uh, focus on Jewish people. But Nazi ideology also viewed Slavic people as inferior humans and considered communism, which was prevalent in, the, in Russia or the USSR, as a Jewish plot. So for Hitler, a war against the Soviet Union is both, both racial and an ideological struggle. So the scene's kind of set. An Operation Barbarossa is initiated in June 22nd of 1941. It is arguably his biggest gamble in the war. It's an ambitious attempt to conquer the Soviet Union. And at a high level, despite the initial rapid advances, Germany, uh, the Germans failed to capture any, failed to capture the key objectives like Moscow, Leningrad, and the Caucasus. This miscalculation, combined with the Soviet Union's resilience, resulted in a two-front war that stretched German resources and marked a pivotal shift in World War II. The Eastern Front became the deadliest theater of the war with massive military and civilian casualties. It also ushered in heinous war crimes and paved the way for the Holocaust in the East. The campaign's failure to secure, you know, what was intended to be a swift victory caused uh, Germany's entanglement in a two-front war. And the Soviet Union's subsequent counteroffenses not only pushed the Germans back, but also heavily influenced the post-war division of Europe and laid, you know, the foundations for the Cold War. So Barbarossa isn't just this military operation, but it is, I think it's adequate and, you know, accurate to look at it like a watershed moment with lasting geopolitical ramifications. Definitely. And I think when I look at World War II and I look at all the great battles that are fought, and if you ask, you know, what's the turning point of World mm -hmm. War II? I think it's Hitler's failure to take Stalingrad and the counteroffensive that the Soviet Union does to push the Germans out of Stalingrad and essentially puts the Germans on their heels for the remainder of the war. And yep. I understand kind of the thought of Look, if we do this war quickly, we can take Moscow, we can take St. Petersburg, we can take the Caucasus Mountains. You, you, you kind of see where he's coming from, but from a technical standpoint on the amount of fuel you're going to need, the amount of distance you're going to have to cover, the splitting up of the army into three. So the way Hitler kind of did it was instead yep. of sending everybody at Moscow, they said, we're going to send some to St. Petersburg, which was called Leningrad in the north, to Moscow, kind of along the way, taking Stalingrad but then also going south into the Caucasus Mountains to get the yep. oil. And it's, you know, it's kind of that three-pronged approach. But one thing I read about, too, is in this spring of, in Russia, it rains a ton. 
ton. Horribly. Yeah, I'll get yeah. into that. Yeah, it, okay. it was one of yeah. the one of the logistical issues that they ran into that they didn't consider. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get into that, I just want to talk a bit about the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, which is essentially the non-aggression pact. So this, you know, this predates Operation Barbarossa, but in August 23rd, 1939, this kind of marked a pretty diplomatic shockwave across the world. Uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, you know, ideologically opposed powerhouses inked a non-aggression agreement. At its core, from what I read and what I understand, this was essentially a mechanism for both nations to further their own territorial aspirations without you know, having to immediately, you know, and I, I will underline, double underline immediately, uh, the immediate fear of conflict with each other. Um, embedded within the pact were secret protocols that divided Eastern Europe into German and Soviet spheres, allowing both to annex and exert influence over their designated areas. So I couldn't imagine being a diplomat in 1939 to hear this breaking news that Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union have signed a non-aggression pact. I don't know how you would feel, Paul, but like it would it would terrify me. Not only would it terrify me, it would shock me because I think we've talked about it long enough and I going back through my notes here about Hitler is he hates Jews, but he also hates communists. Yes. He hates the Bolsheviks. He hates everything that the that Russia stands for. And I thinking back there's a video that i saw on youtube once and it was really eye-opening to me it was it took place in the 90s sometime and it was these german Wehrmacht soldiers speaking to this girl and they were just kind of talking you know she was from the netherlands and talking about what her grandparents went through through the nazi occupation and you know kind of talking all these about all these things that happened but really what caught me was the soldiers kind of at some point said like Look, we never wanted to fight you guys. Nobody, we never wanted to fight Britain, France, Belgium, the Dutch. We never wanted to do any of that. You guys started that war. We wanted to go east. We wanted to destroy the communists because they were the true threat. It wasn't you guys. And like you said, that hatred for Slavic people as well. There's that underlying racism, but also this hatred for communism, where just the fact that they would sign something and say, we're not going to attack each other, you know. Sure, I guess some yeah. pol- some no. people are like, yeah, all right, we'll see how long that lasts. Sure, but, I, yeah. <laughs> but I would have been shocked. I would have been absolutely yeah. shocked to hear that, to to see it, and to even see it last, and to see you know Germany and Russia agree to split Poland in half, and like almost sharing a border now. Like it's, yeah, it was really un- it would have been unheard of to to think of something like that happening. But again. Hitler kind of maybe knows what's happening in the West. He knows that he's pushed Britain's buttons and France's buttons enough that, uh, you know, he needs to, you know, buy himself some time potentially before, you know, he does what he needs to do with Russia. No, and I, I totally agree. And I think this is the reality, right? So for for Hitler, this pact was strategic pragmatism. His ambition was a sprawling German empire in the East, but he knew launching a two-front war was an outcome he didn't want. So you know, that's the understanding with the Soviets, even if temporary, which I think he must have known was temporary, gave Nazi Germany the freedom to embark on its Western European campaigns without having to worry about the Eastern counteroffensive at the same time. And then Joseph Stalin, with his own motives, in the 1930s, had seen the Red Army undergo what's known as like, you know, the Great Purges. So many of his top officers were either executed or imprisoned. I think it was like one in every five, depending on the rank. So you have total incompetence at this point within the Red Army. And, you know, these are inexperienced young men now that are in positions of leadership who are probably terrified. So the intelligence reporting and just, you know, trustworthiness of what's probably going to happen, is probably very low. Yeah, and it's a classic Soviet thing where he's wiping out people to, I guess, Stalin specifically wiping people out to consolidate his power, but ultimately weakening his state. And so, yeah, I, 
I, it would be interesting when we look at this eventually one day from Stalin's perspective, because I'm curious to see, like, did he see this as really buying time or did he think he was going to actually have this peace? Because to, you know, go through a lot of these purges and not really see what was happening in the West. And he clearly would have had tons of spies in Germany due to the really deep communist mm-hmm. presence. And it would have been really interesting to see kind of what his thoughts were, because you're not ready for this. And, you know, Hitler's probably seeing it the other way going, oh, my goodness, he has all these young men who really aren't ready for war. This should be a walk in the park. So. Yeah, you can kind of see both sides to that. But yeah, it's just a very, very kind of everything hanging in the balance and really by a thin thread. So I looked into that a bit because I was curious. So I think his own motives did include, you know, the real the the reality that he needed, like this is Stalin we're talking about, needed time to rebuild and modernize his forces after the purges. And I think the the pact kind of promised this reprieve from German aggression. And additionally, it offered territories, parts of Poland, the Baltics and parts of Romania, uh, lands that the Soviets had lost in the aftermath of World War One. And I think there's also a section here. Let me just look quickly at my notes. Because I want to figure out, you know, did they really think this is going to last forever? This non-aggression pact, right? Like, I, 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 I just have a hard time believing that both these leaders would think that this is something that both parties are going to honor for any, you know, significant amount of time. And at least from uh, like the USSR's perspective, the Soviets weren't entirely in the dark. Multiple intelligence reports and even warnings from foreign governments like Britain pointed to an imminent German invasion. Yet Stalin, perhaps, you know, people surmise that he was swayed by a combination of disbelief and diplomatic hubris, hesitated to fully mobilize. He was wary of kind of inadvertently provoking Hitler Hitler, and like clung to the hope that the pact would deter a full-scale German assault. Yeah, I think I've heard that as well of like, he didn't really take those intelligence reports as seriously as he did. But I think something you mentioned there is he didn't want to maybe provoke Hitler. And I think it's been very well established that Stalin is a very, very smart man who knows exactly what he's doing, even though it's yep. reprehensible a lot of the time. I can kind of maybe see where he's coming from. If he starts amassing his troops along the border or kind of closer, that might tip Hitler's hand a little bit and not give him the time that he needs. And it's this weird kind of balancing act that he needs to to find. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think if you even like double down on it, this is probably Hitler's biggest gamble in World War II. I, 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 from my perspective, this was something that changed the entire direction and aftermath of what would happen, you know, following this this gamble of attacking Russia. So if we look at kind of like a chronological timeline, and I'll try to run through it. So, uh, you know, I'm calling it his his Hitler's Eastern Gamble, just to kind of, you know, bring it up a level. So by the summer of 1940, uh, with most of Western Europe under Nazi, under the Nazi, you know, banner, Hitler turns his eyes towards the east. The vast expanses of the Soviet Union with its abundant resources and the ideological goal, to your point, Paul, of crushing Bolshevism, you know, is beckoning him at this point. So preliminary planning for an Easter offensive starts in motion. December 1940, Directive 21, signed by Hitler, crystallized the German strategy for the Soviet invasion. So the directive envisioned a rapid campaign, a blitzkrieg that would decimate Soviet defenses before the onset of winter. So you never want to fight Russia in the winter. Bad idea. But it was an underestimation of both the Soviet capacity to resist and the challenges posed by the vast Russian landscape. So when we pivot to talk about why this ultimately failed, I think it's very important to keep those two things in mind. And the scale of German mobilization in the spring of 1941, these numbers are, they're incredible. So close to 4 million soldiers were readied, divided amongst three major army groups. Uh, There were 600,000 vehicles, 
3,600 tanks, almost 2,800 aircrafts, and 750,000 horses. This was complemented by Finnish and Romanian forces adding depth to the assault, especially in the north and the south. I think you can see too, we, when they talk about you know Hitler's Autobahn and everything that he created, it was, I imagine a lot of it is for this eastern offensive to be able to mobilize quickly because I think they realized very quickly when they took France in as little a time as they did, they they probably felt this level of invincibility where they can 100%. move quickly, yep. use that blitzkrieg, and it would never fail them. The only problem is you can only blitzkrieg so far, and if Moscow's 100 miles away and you can only go 20 miles, you're going to run and into some problems. Forever, yeah, exactly. And forever. Right. So leading up to the actual invasion of Russia, so in April 1941, there are distractions in the Balkans. So Hitler's ambition in the Balkans led to invasions of Yugoslavia and Greece. While these campaigns were successful, they also siphoned off resources and time, and it actually pushed back the original mid-May timeline for Barbarossa, which was delayed until late June. So in June... Uh, 1941, the pact is shattered. The German war machine stretched across an 1,800-mile front. 1,800 miles surges into Soviet territory. Army Group North aimed for Leningrad, Army Group Center with its eyes on Moscow, and Army Group South focusing on the resource-rich Ukraine. Commenced a campaign of rapid encirclements and assaults. This onslaught marked the dawn of the Eastern Front, a theater of war now that we know characterized by its unprecedented scale, brutality, and obviously, you know, as we've talked about the significance it would play in World War II, but, you know, the ge- geopolitical realities that would kind of materialize after the fact. They always kind of talk about the Americans being, you know, they woke a sleeping giant. You really woke a sleeping giant here with the Russians and maybe even a larger one to the, to the level. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to be able to see their ability to mobilize. And when you have Stalin's ability to just point at something and make it happen without having to go through a slow democratic process or anything like that. Things can happen very, very quickly. So yeah, it's, it, you kind of just doubled down, I think again, on the, the geopolitical side of things and how this is going to affect everything where, you know, every centimeter that Russia gains coming back after this is, you know, land that's going to be under communism's iron curtain till the early nineties. And it all comes back to this decision, which I just find is crazy that, you know, one decision can change the course of hundreds of millions of people's lives for 50 plus years and even till t- today, which I think is why this decision is, is just so crazy that it all kind of, you know, it's never going to end and it's always going to be something that's going to matter. And even the war happening in Ukraine right now is, you know, people are going back and talking about, well, when the Germans invaded this and that happened. So yeah, it's a, it's a very fascinating time. Yeah, it is. And it's amazing how close the Germans get to taking Russia. Um, I'm just looking at some of the battle timelines. They, I go, I go pretty deep here, but I, I won't, I won't get too into the details. But you know, the Germans are able to capture Leningrad, so that's modern day Saint Petersburg. They're able to get to. Um, they are able to reach the the outskirts of Moscow in the winter. You know, having fighting continues in the winter of 1942. But then, you know, Germans are driven back. You know, marking a series of defensive battles. So there's a kind of a pivot point that happens here. You know, into 1942. Um, the Germans actually reached Stalingrad in August 23, 1942, but the Soviets are able to launch Operation, uh, an operation which is aimed to encircle and entrap the German Sixth Army in Stalingrad. 
And on December 2nd, they're entirely encircled. The remaining troops in January of that year, uh, this would actually be January 1943, uh, surrender in Stalingrad, which marks the turning point in Operation Barbarossa and the Eastern Front as a whole. So they're captured. Uh, the, the German forces recaptured the cities from the Soviets while Operation, well, the operation like officially started in 1941 and the conflict continued till the end of 1945. It was the winter of 1943 where Germany is now on the defensive and the Russians are now on the offensive. So that's Sleeping Bear. Their economy is ramped up. Their military output is ramped up. I actually remember taking a course on this in university, and one of our professors showed a uh, like a table that showed economic output across all the Allied powers. You know, to your point about awakening the sleeping giant of America, the Russian economic and military output compared to America's, like the gap was so significant that it was mind-blowing. And it's, it's, it's almost fascinating that we don't talk about that more because how well Russia had kind of mobilized their uh, industry centers as well as their military in such a short amount of time to, to, to get on the offensive and push the Germans into a defensive stalemate. And I think it was probably desperation too, right? You're, 100%. You know, Americans, sure, they got attacked, but you know, no one was knocking on the White House door from a, an enemy power, right? You know, the, the Germans are on the outskirts of Moscow looking at Red Square and, and ready to attack they're going to drop everything to, to defend their homeland. So yeah, there's definitely this need to kind of come up. But yeah, it is crazy how quickly things come together. You can kind of understand when you have somewhat slave labor happening in your in your country, you have essentially carte blanche to do whatever you want to your people. But then also you've kind of had decades of this propaganda machine running for love of country, love of the Communist Party, love of Stalin, and people are willing to drop everything to kind of protect their homeland. And they've also seen the atrocities that the Nazis are doing this. They didn't do themselves any favors, you know, coming into Russia. And like, even when they came into Ukraine, they actually were doing okay with the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians kind of saw them as liberators in in a sense because they were under Soviet occupation. But even that kind of starts to turn sour. And then they move into Russia and you know, the Holocaust and the Holocaust, the Holocaust by bullets starts before the gas chambers even start. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, again, it's one of those things where we talk about the decision and I think the execution obviously is, is where this kind of falls apart, but to just, I think when you come in with this hatred of the Russians and the Slavic people and the communists, you don't see them as like, I understand you want this living space. You want the oil, you want to defeat Russia, but you have to occupy this place yep. and to rule with an iron fist for so long over an area so vast that you're never going to fully conquer. They probably thought they would, but what are you, are you going to go all the way to Siberia and, and conquer yeah, the entire country? The goal there, right? Exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. When I kind of look at it from that sense, I, you, you have to kind of wonder, but you're right. Like they go into a defensive war and, I don't think from what I remember, there's there were some counterattacks by the Germans, but when it really comes to territory, it's you just see that front line and it just starts to move west and west and west and yeah. west and west, and then eventually you're in Berlin. Yeah, and I think I think early on it's a tactical success, right? Because they are able to get deep into Russia. We're talking Min Min Minsk 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 Minsk, yeah, the Minsk. Belarusian yeah, capital. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking Stalingrad. We're talking Leningrad. Which you know, which is quite impressive, but it is a strategic failure because there's an underestimation of Soviet strength. You know, the German military and leadership seriously underestimated the resilient size and capabilities of the Soviet Union. Vast distance in logistics, right? The sheer size of the Soviet Union, to your point, is a massive logistical challenge. So as Germans further advanced, supply lines became extended, making it harder to get supplies to the front lines and 
they weren't able to leverage the infrastructure of the Soviet Union because it wasn't a very good infrastructure, which was further complicated by really harsh weather. Um, they were ill-equipped if we doubled down on the harsh weather front for the Russian winter. Freezing temperatures, snow, mud hampered their operations, equipment and troop morale. Conversely, the muddy period, known as Rasputitsa, occurring both in the spring and the fall, made many roads impassable for German vehicles. So, you know, you have this Blitzkrieg-style offensive, and you can't do it because the weather and the terrain doesn't allow for it. <clears throat> no, and, and then also, like, the Soviet resistance and strategy. So despite some initial setbacks, the Red Army was you know, able to demonstrate some remarkable resilience, but under the, the Soviet leadership, they also adopted a scorched earth policy. So they would destroy infrastructure and resources as they retreated, so Germans couldn't use them. This is an interesting one too, which was the Soviet, uh, the relocation of Soviet industry. So the Soviets actually managed to relocate much of their essential industries to the Ural Mountains uh, and other regions far from the front lines. So this allowed continuous production of weapons and equipment, even as the Germans captured significant portions of the Soviet territory. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity here as to why Operation Barbarossa failed. And I think you know, it's easy to see it as a failure of German intelligence and decision-making and strategic decision-making. But I think we've got to give credit to the Russians here for being able to adapt and mechanize their economy and military to be able to respond in the way that they did. I think it's Dan Carlin who said on one of his podcasts, and I think it was a perfect way to to, to kind of summarize how wars are won. And I think you mentioned it earlier, how it was a tactical victory, but a strategic failure mm -hmm. where, you know, he puts a very low percentage of value on the tactics. The strategy is everything. But on top of that, a lot of times the battles are even won before any soldiers step foot on the battlefield. And he points directly to industrial might of a, of a country or of an organization. Like we talked about the Union Army in the Civil War, American Civil War. They were going to win because they had the industrial might and they were just going to keep pumping out, keep going. you know, new, more yeah. weapons, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's exactly what we see here is, you know, Germany has these really, really fantastic generals. They have probably some of the better weapons. They have the best tanks. But then, you know, when Russia can pump out, you know, 20 T-34s in the time that Germany can pump out, you know, one Tiger tank, Hey, Tiger Tank's a, a great tank, but it's a gas guzzler. And you got to, are you going to be able to take out 20 T-34s? And the kind of the same thing with the Americans, right? They're pumping out Shermans left, right, and center. Not mm -hmm. as powerful, but they just were able to just kind of throw volume at Germany. And that kind of seems to be, game, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, which is just terrible because the German, they, sorry, the Russians really took that to heart where, well, if we throw a hundred thousand men at 20,000 Germans, yeah. half of them die, we win the battle. Great. Yeah. We'll just keep doing that. Yeah. Um, just because you have what almost seems like unlimited resources, you just need to find a way to get at them. And I think by the end of the war, the Soviet union loses, I think it's 20% of their population, civilian and yeah, military. So. Yeah. so, you know, it's, it is. A, and I also think, too, maybe the tactics, they didn't really fully understand that we're going to come from the Russians. Like when you're fighting the French and you're fighting the British, genuinely care about their people. They want to bring their soldiers home. They aren't going to waste these resources where the Russians, it's a meat grinder, right? You can just keep throwing people in and, yeah. you know, you hear the stories of one rifle for two men, two men run in, one gets shot. Okay, you, you're, you're there to pick up his rifle when he gets shot. Not if he gets shot, but wow. when he gets yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think part of that, too, is talk about a failure of intelligence but just failure to really understand what your enemy is willing to do to win yeah and i think that is a, that's a huge one right like just an overall underestimation of soviet resilience um 
just the, the, the scale, right? This is a problem that was dealt with from the Soviet perspective of just throw, it's a numbers game at this point. We're just going to keep throwing resources, whether they're, you know, military, technology, or human. And we're going to keep throwing it at you until, you know, we push you back far enough. Definitely. And I'm just thinking too of, you know, why making this decision? And I come back to, I think Hitler's biggest failure as a, as a leader is his inability to get past his ideological views on some of his decisions. But then I've also been thinking, does he have to continue to go down that because the entire basis of what he's done is based on these ideological kind of thoughts and feelings towards communists and Jews, for example, and you know, the Holocaust, for example, is a massive strain on military resources. You have people, you know, the whole thing that happens with the Holocaust is, you know, there's unfortunately people got to run it. You're using resources to do that. You're invading Russia. There's all these resources that go into it that are probably could have been used better elsewhere, but he's doing it because he has this deep ideological reasoning for it. I think he genuinely believes all of these things, but yep. can he get past it? Because that's what the party stands for. And people, you know, if he doesn't do it, is his job at risk? And, you know, those are always sort of the things we have to think about is, did he, he had to attack Russia at some point because then he's a failure and a liar, most likely as he keeps talking about how terrible communists are. And you have this massive communist power right on your doorstep and you're in, you're the Germans, you're the superior race and you've done nothing about it. You know, who yeah, knows where things, yeah. how things could have changed for him. Yeah. I totally agree with that sentiment. I, I don't think you could uncouple those two things, right? Um, like to <laughs> just have like the scenario in my head. I love revisionist history, you know, not a uh, Hitler coming through at a rally and saying, yeah, by the way, we're gonna edit the Nazi ideology. We don't, <laughs> We don't think it's working, right? Like, I don't think that's a possibility. So, and I think this is the danger of ideological motivation. And not just in terms of, obviously, we know how dangerous it can be. And we've seen it with the Holocaust or the purges. You know, there are countless examples of throughout history of where ideological driven hate can can lead to some of the most heinous crimes against humanity. For this particular decision, it was ideologically motivated and strategically short-sighted. I don't think they understood what they were getting into uh, well enough. And because of that, you know, his gamble didn't pay off and ultimately led to the, the fall of, of Nazi Germany and, you know, Hitler's death. I think that's a perfect way to put it with that mix of ideologically driven, but a strategic failure. Um, I really like that. But before we end, I had one question that I wrote down here, Richie, and I wanted to to ask you. So I was listening to another podcast about Hitler and um, the historian Tom Holland was was speaking and he was talking about how, you know, in today's society, we're becoming more and more secular. Um, religion doesn't take as big of a piece in our lives anymore. But when people want to talk about the definition of evil, they always say Hitler. They compare people to Hitler. They're like, oh, he's worse than Hitler, these sort of things. Yeah. And I almost, and he kind of made this point, and I thought this was super interesting, is he's almost become like a modern day devil-like figure. Because back in the day, you would say, you know, he's the devil or he's worse than the devil. People really don't say that anymore. It's almost like Hitler has replaced him. He's become the secular devil, for lack of a better term, which just kind of was like, as he was saying it, I was like, maybe that's a little far-fetched, but as I started to think about it... I kind of see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... It's just this, it's the change, I think, in our society of we, you know, we physically see what Hitler's done. We've seen the evil and we just kind of put that badge on him that he is the definition of pure evil, which I don't think... You can really say anybody's pure evil because I think, again, that just kind of brushes every brushes someone with a, a cloth of just saying, yeah, he's evil. And I think it kind of yeah. l- almost lets him get away with a lot of the things that happen. Like we clearly see he's an actual person with feelings and 
can yep. think through things. He's not just some robot that just goes forward and he's destined to be evil. But I just thought it was a very interesting way to think about it as we've kind of moved out of a more, you know, very religious society to a more secular looking society. Yeah, no, that's a interesting frame because, yeah, like one of the easiest slurs or detractions to throw against someone you disagree with, who you think, you know, this right or left is to call them a Nazi, right? Like that's kind of the word that is used to uh, create this, you know, separation between you and someone you disagree with or you think is saying something hateful or disgusting. <sighs> yeah, it's... I kind of agree. It's a really good question. I, I, I kind of do see him like this devil figure just because even though there are such, there are a lot of other examples of this kind of calculated mass scaled murder. You know, you can look at Stalin. Stalin could easily step in for the role mm -hmm. of devil. You he's know, got a bigger body his, count. So like he's his purges, yeah, Mao yeah, as well. His, like these guys yeah. are killing a lot more people than Hitler did. There are plenty of people that I think you can kind of point to that could sub in and out for Hitler quite, quite easily. And I wouldn't have a problem with it. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think, you know, even if I think to like the, the I couldn't imagine someone calling me a devil. <laughs> One that's kind of funny because uh, it's just so not what we hear. Yeah, it's... Um, and, and, and largely what we think about the devil is, you know, basic biblical stories. There's, there's not much tangible there. Whereas with Hitler, you can point to something. You know, you can talk to something, you can go visit the site, you can see the pictures, you can hear the stories. And I think that in large part is probably why he gets that claim. Yeah, I can see why people do it. Yeah, I think you put it perfectly there of this, this tangible element that for, you know, a biblical figure, there's more of a belief sense to it. And you don't have to believe in Hitler. You, you know, no. he exists, right? Exactly. You know, you know, he's, he did what he did. And again, is, is this evil figure. And even though I said, I don't want to, I don't think calling him evil is uh, the correct term, just because I think there's, it's too simple. There's more to yeah. it there. And I, I think it kind of lets him off the hook, but I think um, that might be kind of a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, I think just kind of coming away from this on, you know, the decision, I think we talked about um, at length and just from a tactical strategic perspective, but I think I walk away from this with Hitler as I don't think I'll see him the same way anymore. I think I kind of came into this, like I've been saying multiple times of psychopath, evil, the devil, the worst person who's ever existed. And I think he gets off the hook a little bit from that because I think it, so it was a way for me to justify why he did the things that he did, but kind of getting into his life and reading more and more about him. I think he's, unfortunately, I hate to say it, was at one point a regular person who went down a very, very dark path. Yep. And I think that's a lot more scary, makes him a lot more scary than I originally thought. So yeah, maybe not walking away from this feeling super great about the world, but I think it's important to to understand that most people who get to the point where Hitler is are regular people at some point, and then something clicks or many things click, and then you have, you know, the man we're talking about today. Yeah, I totally agree with that sentiment. I think the decision, I think we kind of both walk away with the um, with the conclusion that, you know, ideologically motivated, strategically short-sighted. I agree with your sentiment that kind of pinpointing Hitler and calling him evil and the psychopath is short-sighted, not only because it kind of lets him off the hook. I also think it lets other people off the hook, right? He was within, uh, he was a main component, you know, a large component of the Nazi machinery that was responsible for the crimes. But there were other components 
and people that were at the heart of you know the final solution the propaganda machine the you know that stood him up and kept him in power so i think doubling down on hitler as the most evil to your last question you know i think it has some value but i also think it takes away from understanding the importance of looking at it more holistically to see how something like this can happen and how you know people can turn a blind eye yeah it's a great lesson i think on how how can we make sure things like this never happen again? And yeah. if it's, you know, we can't write off just oh, was one crazy guy. And as long as we make sure there's no crazy guy, yeah. we're okay. Right. Yeah. I think you make a great point. Everything kind of comes together and it's, you know, something that we've seen a lot of through history, but I think the systemic nature of the Nazi party and of Hitler make it so much more pronounced than the reason why we're talking about it today. Yep. Awesome. All right. Thank you everybody. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoyed our journey through time, please subscribe, rate us, and share the podcast with friends. Your support helps keep history alive. Until next time.